uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series on, on spiritual gifts. And to start with that, I want to do a little bit of a context thing. So I'm going to go to ancient Rome, if that's all right with you. Um, in ancient Rome, uh, prominent citizens would wear rings like these. These kinds of rings, they, they, they bore uh, initials or an insignia or some other kind of identifying inscription. And they'd use these to make an imprint on clay or wax uh, that that would be a sign of authority for the document or the thing that they were doing. So it would could confirm, confirm treaties. It would validate uh, commercial transactions or authenticate the commands of an official uh, letter. And in the story of the prodigal son, if you remember, when he comes, the father meets him in the road. What did, you remember what he did? He put a robe on him and a ring on his finger. And what that did was it said, yeah, he's the guy that went, but he's back, and he is now has full authority in my household. That ring is important in that story. The sign gifts that we're going to talk about today uh, in the body of Christ function in a very similar capacity. They're God's signet ring, for lack of a, a better uh, word. With, and it authenticates, and you see this in Scripture, both God's message and his message bearers. And so that's where the sign gifts come in. In his gospel, John uh, talked about Jesus performing many signs and miracles which verified the authenticity of who he was, and it verified what he said. But John didn't report all of the miracles, as we see in the passage. Many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing uh, and that b by believing you may have life in his name. So John used these s the stories of the signs and miracles that Jesus did as a way to authenticate who Jesus was. So, so that's part of why he included those. Paul, though, also uh, spoke of the miraculous uh, display of God's power as a distinguishing characteristic for him in his own apostleship, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So one of the purposes of signs was to distinguish that this is a true bona fide person of God, a messenger of God, and to authenticate that message that the person brought to the people that he was in ministry with. And as the church began, uh, these signs and miracles were incredibly important, right, because he, they needed to authenticate. They were pronouncing a really important new gospel and it needed something kind of oomph to it back back then in particular still does but but it was an important part of the beginning of the church the sign gifts are listed in first corinthians 12 and i got a little video that will help us with that god's various gifts are handed out everywhere you can easily see how this kind of thing works by looking no further than your own body. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots. But then we entered into a large and integrated life in which he has the final say in everything. This is what we proclaimed in word and action when we were baptized. Each of us is now a part of his resurrection body, refreshed and sustained at one fountain, his spirit, where we all come to drink. 
The old labels we once used to identify ourselves, labels like Jew or Greek, slave or free, popular or unpopular, jock or geek, are no longer useful. We need something larger, more comprehensive. I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant, not less. A body isn't just a single part blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If foot said, I'm not elegant like hand, embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to this body, would that make it so? If ear said, I'm not beautiful like eye, limpid and expressive, I don't deserve a place on the head, would you want to remove it from the body? If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If all ear, how could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. But I also want you to think about how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are part of. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body, but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is important on its own. Can you imagine I telling hand, get lost, I don't need you? Or head telling foot, you're fired, your job has been phased out. As a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. The lower the part, the more basic and therefore necessary. You can live without an eye, for instance, but not without a stomach. When it's a part of your own body that you're concerned with, it makes no difference whether the part is visible or clothed, higher or lower. You give it dignity and honor just as it is, without comparisons. If anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than the higher. If you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion to full-bodied hair? <laughs> The way God designed our bodies is a model for understanding our lives together as a church. Every part dependent on every other part. The parts we mention and the parts we don't. The parts we see and the parts we don't. If one part hurts, every other part is involved in the hurt and in the healing. If one part flourishes, every other part enters into the exuberance. You are Christ's body. That's what you are. You must never forget this. Okay, so I could have read that, but I didn't want to. Because <laughs> The passage does go on. It says, And God placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues are all apostles are all prophets are all teachers do all work miracles do all have gifts of healing do all speak in tongues do all interpret now eagerly desire the greater gifts love is indispensable and yet i will show you the most excellent way and then it moves into first corinthians 13 i think andy touched on the importance of love when it comes to the body of christ and to giftedness so what we're going to look at today are sign gifts 
And we're going to start with miracles, the spiritual gift of miracles. Our series is from Charles Swindoll, and in order to be true to his position, I want to give you his thoughts. And he has three points about the gift of miracles. Miracles is the first of the sign gifts that we see in our list. Uh, what this is, is the supernatural, and this is important to, to understand these definitions. This is the, we're talking about spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us. So this is the supernatural gift to alter the laws of nature. A person with this gift would perform pretty big miracles. They would calm the sea, right, and, and uh, raise the dead, those types of things. These are big miracles that the, this person would be able to do. Uh, and Swindoll makes three assertions about this gift, the first of which is uh, that God's great eras each began with the display of miracles. Every time that there was kind of a, a, a big movement, there were miracles associated with that, and he points to a, a few of those. One is Moses, right? You remember Moses? A uh, lot of miracles with Moses in, the, in those days, a lot going on, you know, from the burning bush, which wasn't him, but that was a miracle associated with him. And then he goes to Egypt, and what happens with Pharaoh? Plagues, and he calls down plagues, all these things, these miracles that Moses is doing uh, at that time. And then they get to leave, and more miracles, the parting of the Red Sea and, and manna in the desert. There's just a lot of, <coughs> excuse me, of miracles associated with Moses. So that's one of those eras that Swindoll points us to. Another is when Jesus came. When Jesus came, uh, there was another series of miracles. And as John tells us, we, we don't even know them all because Jesus was a walking, talking miracle maker. So there's a lot that he did that we know about. There's a lot that he did that we don't know about. And Swindoll points us to Revelation 11. There will be a time when the, pro when, when a, the prophet, uh, prophets will return and their authority will be validated by a display of miracles. So uh, God's great eras each began with a display of miracles. His second point is that once the era was underway, the miracles fade. So Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 gives some insight into that. It says after it was First spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Jesus spent three years with the disciples imparting these teachings into their hearts and into their minds, and we see that through their actions. After his ascension, God used a, a supernatural display at the day of Pentecost, right? When, when tongues of fire and the Holy Spirit coming. And so that was a, a display of miracles and through the healings that they performed. His third point is that cessation of the gift of miracles does not mean God has ceased giving miracles. Our God is a miraculous God. Our God is a God of miracles. Um, he doesn't change. His methods do. And throughout history, there have been uh, just a few of those times when miraculous events played a prominent role that through the spiritual gift of miracles, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Christ, and the apostles. Uh, miracles as a common experience are, have been absent for a while now. Uh, we don't see them as frequently as what we read in Scripture. Uh, a lot of the great guys, the greatest names in the Old Testament, you don't have them you have them associated with miracles, but not performing miracles, like Noah didn't perform a miracle, though <laughs> the flood and what he did with the animals was certainly a miracle. So, so you saw that with him, with Abraham. Uh, again, he didn't necessarily have the gift of healing or those kinds of things, or, but miracles surrounded him with David as well. 
So they saw the hand, miraculous hand of God at work in their lives, but it wasn't necessarily through a spiritual gift of miracles. Uh, Swindoll goes on and it talks about healing as the next of our sign gifts. And this is, again, this is the gift to instantly restore someone to physical or mental health. A person would, with this gift would be able to heal as Jesus did. And Swindoll has this statement, which uh, I, I like that what, what he has to say here. It's talking about our current world. Faith healers of today range from tent-meeting country revivalists to television celebrities. They may have large and loyal followings, but their theology is not as tight as their tent stakes or as focused as their cameras. We need to address three claims today concerning healing. So these are his three claims. One is that it is asserted by some that healing is a part of the atonement. Uh, Isaiah is often quoted in this where he talks about, by his stripes we are healed. And, and so, so that, that, some folks have said, means that we are, because of the atonement of Christ, we are uh, guaranteed healing. First Peter, Peter says, He himself bore sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, and now you return to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And again, the point that I think that Swindoll makes is correct. I just think that he's limited, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. Peter himself healed people miraculously. So to assert that he was only speaking to the spiritual, as Swindoll would tell us, is a stretch. Swindoll would point that the atonement guarantees us spiritual healing, not physical. His second point is that it's asserted that God's will is for every sick person to be healed. We see Paul had a thorn in the flesh, so that's not scriptural and not something to, to expect. That's, you know, there is healing that happens, sometimes back to life, sometimes into death, so there's healing available always, um, but it's not always in the physical realm. And uh, in his third point is that it's asserted that physical illness is the result of personal sin or demonic activity, and that was really common in the days of Jesus. That was, you know, if you remember the story uh, when they asked him who, whose fault is it that that this man is sick? Is it his parents or is it him? And, and Jesus' response was, it was neither. It was so that today the, the Son of God could be glorified. So it was for God's glory that that happened. Um, you don't hear that much about that anymore um, because it just doesn't have legs. And the third of the sign gifts that we're going to talk about this morning is tongues. And tongues has been a subject that has driven confusion and uh, a lot of division in the church. Uh, the initial outpouring of the, s at the, of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost was a unique and incredible uh, moment when all could understand the disciples in their own language. And that is an incredible, incredible moment, the moment of unity. What happened at the church at Corinth that Paul is talking to in our passage, that there was a focus on speaking uh, in tongues without interpretation, which... Uh, is a part of that if, if you're going to be edified in the body then there needs to be if you're going to speak in tongues there must be interpretation and that was disruptive you know imagine if everybody in here started just kind of saying stuff in their own tongue all at the same time you know they, it would be disastrous uh, you know there would just be a pulling uh, to different directions Paul encouraged people to seek after prophecy because that edified the whole church rather than tongues, which edified only a few. So, 
So those are the, the, the spiritual gifts that we're looking at and, and the sign gifts. So let me bring uh, two schools of thought to, to bear today. And one of the things you hear me talk about I- I quite often is tension, right? That we have tension in the church and in study. This is one of those areas where there's tension because there are cessationists, and a cessationist would be Charles Swindoll, who, who holds to a position that these gifts, the sign gifts, have ceased that they, no long, they are no longer given out by the Holy Spirit, though God can and does continue to do miracles. Continuationist position argues that these gifts continue to be given to this present day. So let me give you what Swindoll's uh, church says about this, because this is concise and, and, and um, on target as you can get for his position. Uh, The question is, do you practice the spiritual gifts of tongues, prophecy, miracles, or healing? And and here's the position. No. We believe that these gifts, tongues, knowledge, healings, miracles, and prophecy, were authorized and active in the early days of the church, but their function and legitimacy ended when the reason for the gift was removed. Once the completed scripture was received, the special gifts were no longer necessary— Rather than providing new revelation, the Holy Spirit now does exactly what Jesus said he would do. He will teach you everything and will cause you to remember everything I said to you. So I don't agree with Swindoll in this, but I understand his position. It's, it's a position that, that many in the church have. One of the things that jumps out at me is that it was Jesus himself who said very in John 14, very truly I tell you whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and in fact they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So Swindoll's logic and pragmatism, I, I get it. And when you look at the church today and you're looking for these miraculous gifts, there's n- you don't see them very often, if at all. And so I understand that position, but I think it's an apologist position. In other words, somebody asks you, where are these gifts? So you have to come up with a reason why you don't see them. That's what apologists do. We all do it as, as Christian apologists to explain things in the church. So, so, so I think that that's where that comes from, but I don't see any reason that these gifts are over. A few weeks ago, I was at a one-race event with with Kit, and we were sitting at tables, and we sat with a gentleman, um, didn't know him from anybody, uh, but he had been on uh, revivals in Africa with uh, Reinhard Bonnke. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a revivalist uh, around the world. I think he's retired now, but he went to Africa to serve on these revivals, and, and, and what jumped out at me was that he was skeptical of the Benny Hinn and, uh, you know, those guys that are on TV today especially being slain in the spirit, because what he said was if you watch them, they invariably kind of look over their shoulder to make sure somebody's back there before they get slain in the spirit. Okay, I'll, I'll do that, but somebody better catch me so I don't get hurt. And what he said was that when that happened uh, on the revi- on this, on at this revival, he said that, did, that wasn't the way that it went. They fell forward when they were overcome by the spirit. They just fell forward. But the miraculous part of that was that he said, but here's the thing is they didn't get hurt. Nobody caught them. They didn't get hurt. And when they got up, they weren't dirty. And you can, I don't know this guy. I can't vouch for him. (laughs) But I will tell you this, that it changed his life. 
that he went from being a person who was more materialistic and seeking the things of the world to now his goal is, is, as he put it, was I try to give as much as I can to the work of God. He was not the same because of what he experienced in that place. 2 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5 says this. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets so that the church may receive edification. And this would be a very strange passage for an apostle to write to a church if he believed that these gifts were no longer available. Because he's writing to pursue the very gifts that a cessationist would say don't exist. So those are some of the reasons that I land where I land. Paul doesn't say that there is no need or use for tongues, but he points out that this is not to be our focus. This passage is also where we get an understanding of what you'll hear uh, in the charismatic and, and world and in those of us who, who have the gifts of tongue, we'll call it a prayer language because it's a language between us and God. And it's not meant necessarily for the church and there's not interpretation that w- is associated with that. You know, God in scripture says that he knows our groanings at, in, when we come to him. So that's so we're able to use that prayer language in that way because it's a language between a person and God and speaks what we don't know necessarily we need to say. But hear this, this argument between cessationists and continuationists, oh, that's just the weirdest words ever, right? Is never going away, okay? It it's just is. It's one of those things in the church that we face. And, and you may be a cessationist, and that's okay. And if you may be a continuationist, and that's okay. What I, I'm, I'm saying is that these positions exist, and we wrestle with this stuff, and we try to figure it out as best we can. But at the end of the day, we're not going to agree on everything. So what I would encourage you to do is as you study, not if you study, (laughs) as you study, maintain an open mind to the Holy Spirit. Because regardless of what you might personally believe about these gifts, the sign gifts, you know who is the one who hands them out? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit only. And he, as we talked about last week, he hands the gifts out as the Holy Spirit sees fit. So study. Study, 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 study. Go deeper. We put resources online so that you can do this. In, uh, you know, Dave mentioned about groups. You know, ours is going to, we're going to be on break till the fall, but we'll be back in the fall, you know, because small groups are really important for us. <coughs> but study. We're never going to have all the answers, and there's so many questions. But we can ask the questions and we'll get a greater understanding. 
See, I've come to the place where my love of the Bible and the fact that it's God's revelation to us does not prevent me from also believing that if all I have is the Bible, then I don't have enough. Because God exists and reveals outside of his word. And I want to complete and mature faith, which means I need to be available for that. It's not just found on the pages of his revelation, but beyond that. Now, Scripture is critically important, and that's what keeps us on track. As Methodists, we work within a study construct called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. I don't know if you've heard of that before, but it's a way of studying, and it takes into account Scripture, experience, tradition, reason, but hang on, that's not actually correct. Because it ought to look more like this. See, tradition, reason, and experience impact our understanding of Scripture. But what's primary? Scripture. Scripture is God's revelation to us, and we need to be in the Word, and we need to study. But it doesn't mean that tradition, that what that is, is the traditions that we're raised with, the forefathers, the guys who have been, you know, written some amazing things for Augustine and all of the ancient authors up to there's current day theologians that we need to be reading. They inform us, the traditions in the church. And, and, and reason is, use your head, <laughs> please. Use your brain. You're given a brain, use your brain. It's important. And our experiences matter, the things that, that happen in our life. But, it, but always be cautious of experience driving us in a direction that's away from Scripture. And all of these things, if it disagrees with Scripture, it's not of God. And that's important to grab hold of and to wrestle with as we go forward. But this is, this is a wonderful way to understand Scripture and to understand who God is in our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. So bring everything you've got to the journey. <laughs> there is more to know <laughs> than we will ever, ever know. But ought we not give it our best shot? We should engage as best we can to learn about this God of ours who loves us and wants a relationship with us and we, to embrace that and to go to the place where that leads. It's incredibly important. It's incredibly important. Next week, we're going to try and <laughs> wrap these things up together in a, in a, in a, in a we've been on the journey since the fall. You know, looking at different things. And next week, we're going to kind of bring some things together around that. So I hope that you'll come back and invite others to do so as well.